0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 11. Our topic will be the collection for the Jerusalem church, the poor saints in Jerusalem that Paul is administering and collecting money for from four provinces all over the Roman world. That will take up the first four verses, and after that, he will talk about some of his travel plans to the Corinthians. This passage has a lot of complicated chronology in it, a lot of speculations as to what Paul did where and when and who he sent where and when and so forth. We'll try to make some sense out of it. Our context is the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul went in great detail, I think it was 58 verses about the resurrection of the dead, very important topic. Now he's moved from that to finances and taking care of the poor, another important topic. We start with verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 16. Now, about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. Now, when he says now about, that means he's referring to a specific question asked of Paul in the previous letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul. He's done this in four other places. I'll mention them to you very quickly. First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have relations with a woman. First Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8.1, About food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. So he sees answering specific questions the Corinthians have asked him. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Now concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. 1 Corinthians 16:12. About our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers. So Paul continues his laundry list of responses to the Corinthian saints. You notice he's still calling them saints, holy ones, despite the fact that they have screwed up in every possible imaginable way. Saints really refers to our status, who we are. It does not necessarily refer to our actions because sometimes we can exhibit unregenerate behavior and the Corinthians were obviously doing that. Now let's look at some other scriptures talking about this poor relief. I'm going to call it the four province gift. I saw it referred to that by somebody on the internet. It's apparently not a widespread term because I did a search on it and couldn't find it again. But I'm going to call it the four-province gift. The four provinces that Paul collected this money from were Galatia, which is in the middle of present-day Turkey, Asia, Asia Minor. That's Turkey. Then he took up money from Achaia, Greece, Corinth. Then he took up money from Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica. And then he took up money from Rome. This is a big deal, a real big deal. By the way, why was he trying to take up money to send to Jerusalem? He wanted to show those Jewish Christians that Gentile Christians were one and the same with them. Were, the wall of the partition had been divided down. An act of charity from the Gentile brethren would show the Jewish brethren in, in Jerusalem that we were all of one spiritual blood. We are all of Christ. As well as just basic humanitarian concerns, because this was right after that big famine that happened in the time of Claudius. This is in the mid-50s. I don't know if that famine was probably a little bit earlier than this, but the economic effects were probably still widespread. The church in Jerusalem was poor. They needed help. So those are the two basic reasons Paul was doing this, and it was very important to him. He mentions it in Acts 24, verse 17. This is Paul before Felix, the Roman official. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my nation. 2 Corinthians 8, 4. They referring to the churches of Macedonia, begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. Let's talk about the ministry to the Jerusalem saints, the churches of Macedonia, are, well, let's see, there was Philippine, there was Thessalonica, I guess you could say Berea too was in Macedonia. 2 Thessalonians 9, 1 through, Second Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 2. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness and I brag about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians, telling them that that Achaia has been prepared. Achaia is the Roman term for the Greek province. The Roman province of Achaia is basically present-day Greece. They've been prepared to give that money since last year. Second Corinthians nine twelve, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing. But is also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. So Paul mentions it in several places here. Now let's talk about when he said what he means when he says, "As I instructed the Galatian churches, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches." He's going to talk about the procedures for up the money in just a minute so we'll assume he did the same thing to the Galatian churches now we know about the Macedonian churches from what Paul wrote to the Romans we know about the Galatian churches here and of course we know about the Corinthian churches from the letters to the Corinthians and then we also know when Paul wrote to the Romans he mentions this poor collection because he's trying to get collect money from the Romans so there are your four provinces right there now this famine in Jerusalem must have been a big problem it was perhaps, maybe, the famine that occurred in Acts 11:28 through 30 Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Now this is the first collection of the four saints, the smaller one that just came from the churches at Antioch. To Jerusalem Paul but Paul was involved in that one too so he was constantly concerned about the church in Jerusalem because after all Paul was a Jew as well as a Christian and he was concerned about them not only was there some kind of a famine in the time of Claudius a Roman Empire-wide famine that affected Jerusalem but also the Christian Jerusalem's the Christians in Jerusalem were being persecuted by the Jewish authorities Acts 8 verse 1 Saul agreed with putting him to death as that's um, Stephen. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So famine, persecution. Hebrews 10:34. this is written to the Hebrew brethren, and a lot of them were, of course, in Jerusalem. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have, have a better and enduring possession. So... From that verse, you can see the Jews were being persecuted and they were hungry and they needed help. And Paul was concerned about them and he's raising the money for them. So let me summarize again. Where did Paul collect this collection from? Galatia, which is in central Asia Minor, present day Turkey. Achaia, which is Greece. Macedonia, which is current present day Macedonia, just to the north of Greece, where Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were. And last of all, Rome. It's a big deal. Paul has shown his concern for the poor from the very beginning. He is illustrating the principle that richer churches need to look out for the churches that are less wealthy. This is, of course, very important for the church in America because we tend—we do not tend to. We do have more money than most of the churches everywhere in the world, and we need to funnel that money over to where it can be used. I've carried money myself to China. And when you see those Christians over there, your heart goes out to them, and you're glad they got every dime you gave them. So we need to do that. I know there's a missionary fund that I like that actually has a special fund for living martyrs, they call it, because of Christians who have been beaten, robbed of their jobs, robbed of their possessions because of the Chinese communist, And they're still living. That's why they call them living martyrs. They need money to live. And so this mission organization collects money, much of it coming from the states, and then it goes over there to help these people. So this is a principle that's was started by the Apostle Paul. Now, it's interesting Paul's strategy here to encourage giving. That's always a touchy subject. I've got a friend of mine who is now raising money for an old, established evangelical organization, been around since the 1930s, and he says, you know, they're so used, so used, so accustomed to raising money the way people do it in America. You know, psychological techniques, manipulation, pushing people's guilt buttons and all that, and it just drives my friend crazy. He says... People need to give. They need to give because they love the people they're giving to, and they love the Lord, and because the Lord has stirred them up by his Holy Spirit, and because God loves a cheerful giver and so forth. None of this manipulation. He says, I will not participate in it. Hear, hear. But it's a difficult thing. Well, let's see what Paul does. Now, if you ask me, Paul actually comes sort of close, sort of close to a little bit of manipulation. Now, I'm not going to say that because I don't believe Paul did that, but he did use a certain technique to encourage the giving. First of all, he mentions Galatia as a spur to the Corinthians to get them to give. Here in our verse that we're looking at right now, remember, he says, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. So he says, okay, the Galatian churches gave. I want you to give too. But then once he's got the Corinthians giving, he then uses the Corinthian church as an example to the Macedonians, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. We look at 2 Corinthians 9, 2 and read this, for I know your eagerness and I brag about you to the Macedonians. <laughs> so Paul is saying, hey, these Corinthian guys, they really want to give money. You Philippians and Thessalonians and Bereans, you Macedonians, maybe you ought to do the same thing that they're doing. I'm bragging about you. Here's how he's bragging. Achaia has been prepared since last year. Greece has been prepared since last year. Corinth has been prepared last year. Are you Macedonians prepared yet? And your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, that's not really manipulation. This is testifying to Christian zeal. And let me tell you, we all need encouragement with Christian testimonies of people doing Christian things. If I get depressed about the church here in, america i talk to chinese christians and listen to what they're going through and looking at the big smile on their faces and how they're evangelizing people and how their their churches have just been busted up and now where am i going to go now and and living a life that's really off my radar scope when it's encouraging it increases my zeal to hear it so paul's saying hey look at here the Achaeans gave money so you macedonians are giving money and and because of the Corinthians and the Achaeans' zeal, the people in Greece, their zeal has stirred you up, stirred you Macedonians up. Well, Paul's not finished. He's going to use the zeal of the Macedonians to stir the Romans up, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. Romans fifteen twenty-six through 27, we read this, "...for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem." So Paul is talking he's telling the Romans look I've already got Macedonia given and Achaia's is given that's up to you that's what the implied message is verse 27 Romans 15 yes they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them the saints in Jerusalem were pleased and indebted to the to the to the churches of Macedonia and Achaia for if the gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs so Paul is making a, an overt fundraising appeal and and i've said this many times there's nothing wrong with doing that as long as you're not doing it for yourself because that will automatically calling call in question your motives are you teaching for profit you know the early greeks were famous for that the sophists socrates made fun of the sophists because they were always asking for money they were selling their their knowledge for money and the church could very easily be tarred with the same brush as today it has been so just don't take money up for your own ministry don't ask for I mean you can take it if somebody wants to give it to you quietly and privately but don't get up and say I need this I need a car I need a van you know don't do that this reminds me of a story I was in China talking to a software engineer who used to drive a big pleasure boat a pleasure yacht up the Charles River in Boston where he was working in the eastern version of Silicon Valley right near MIT And he had it made, but then God said, I want you to go be a missionary. So he went to a missionary to Burma, and he was in Liaoning Province, where I was, and we were teaching at an underground seminar-type thing for these Christians in China, and we were waiting to go on, so we were sitting by ourselves in a room waiting for our turns to speak, and... I was just making conversation with him, and I thought that was quite an interesting story, a software engineer out here on the backside of China. And he said, well, I said, what are you doing now? He says, I'm in Burma trying to get some missionaries from these Chinese people to to cross over illegally the Yunnan border Yun- Yunnan border into Burma and help me over there. He said, now, he's talking to Christians who have left their homes, left their college educations, left their futures. They're living like peasants in the fields at night no home, sleeping in the fields, going in with the farmers in the morning into Laoning. Actually it wasn't Laoning, it was a city outside of Laoning. It was a a smaller city, but they were going into the city with the farmers and so that the cops couldn't find them, couldn't recognize them. They would preach and evangelize all day in the city and then when it was time for the farmers to go back home, they would mingle in with the farmers and go back and sleep in the fields. I mean so these were pretty tough dudes, tough customers, these Chinese evangelists. And the Burmese evangelist looked at him and he said, uh, the American evangelist to to Burma looked at him and said, now, I understand if you can't handle this, I'm not going to look down on you. I realize this might be too tough for you because in Burma, he had no electricity, no running water. He took baths with water running down a conduit from the hillside. His graduation rate at the school he was running, he said, was he gave me a percentage, let's say 80%. I said, well, why can't you get 100%? Well, he said, they don't live long enough. They don't live through the senior year. I mean, in horrible conditions. And I got curious. I said, well, who's financing you with this? And he wouldn't answer me. And I kept bugging him. I mean, I was trying to be polite about it, but I'm curious, you know. And, I, and I'm a business professor. i like to know where the money comes from. I said, how are you doing this? How are you financing that school? How are you financing yourself over there? And he finally looked at me. He says, "I will tell you how I do it, but you've got to promise me one thing: that you will not ask me from that you will not give me any money, and that you will understand that I am not soliciting money from you." I said, "Of course not. I'm not going to give you any money. I just want to know." Well, it turns out he was an overseas missionary fellowship, a successor organization to Hudson Taylor, and that. And Hudson Taylor never asked for money. And look what he did in China. My gosh, it would, if the Chinese church wouldn't be there today if it wasn't for Hudson Taylor. Best missionary ever, 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 ever. And he never asked for money. Neither did Mueller when he was building his orphanages in China. He never asked for money for himself. And that principle was passed on to the OMF missionaries, the successor missionaries to Hudson Taylor, and they just don't ask for money. And yet they managed to finance themselves somehow. God does it. Well, anyway, Paul was the same way. He never asked money for himself. But when it comes to asking money for the poor, there ain't nothing wrong with that because the money's not going to you. It's going to somebody else and nobody can question your motives. Remember, this very church that Paul's writing to in Corinth, he told them, look, I got the right to collect money from you, but I'm not going to do it because he's not going to have people look down on his ministry and introduce his ministry. All right, well, let's look now at a summary of Paul's movements concerning the poor collection. This can be a little complicated, so I'll just try to summarize it for you. First of all, Paul has spent two or three years at Ephesus on the third journey, and he's near the end of his stay there. Let's say that rounded off to three years at the end of his third year in Ephesus. That is is about years 54 through 57 AD. While he's in Ephesus, he sent Timothy and Erastus to Philippi to collect money for the, probably to collect money. I don't think it's the scripture that says that they went there, actually says that they went to collect money. But that, I suspect that's what they went there for, for the poor collection. But anyway, Timothy and Erastus went to Philippi, which is in Macedonia. Paul then, after that, sent Titus to Corinth again to figure out what's going on with these guys, these crazy people at Corinth that are not listening to anything I tell them. Now, Paul wants to hear from Titus, hopefully hoping that the Corinthians have repented and straightened things up. So he goes up to Troas, which is where the old ancient Troy was, right there at the beginning of the Hellsmont northwestern coast of Asia Minor. He goes up there to, to get Titus, but Titus is not there. So he crossed, Paul crosses over from Asia, crosses the Hellespont in the northern Thrace, goes over into Europe, turns the corner, if you will, starts heading south a little bit and ends up at Philippi. And lo and behold, Titus is at Philippi. Titus gives Paul good news about Corinth, and Paul writes Second Corinthians. Hallelujah. I'm glad you repented we think it's, I say Philippi, actually the scripture says Macedonia, I'm assuming it's Philippi, maybe not, maybe it's somewhere else in Macedonia, but anyway, Titus carries Second Corinthians to Corinth. Now, Paul now uh, goes down from Philippi, or wherever he was in Macedonia where he'd met Titus, he follows Titus on into, down to Corinth, stays there three months, then Paul and seven representatives of the churches, including some from Corinth, they walk back to Philippi which is about 300 miles they meet luke there paul sends those seven ahead to troas and i think they went by boat if i remember correctly across the top of the northern Aegean Sea. there he stays for passover and philippi then he goes on over to troas i forgot how he, he how he got there i think he took a boat also he went to troas and then troas he's at troas with the seven and those seven they take boat treks and walks And they mosey on down the western coast of Asia, mounted until they get to Miletus. And Miletus, of course, is where he meets the elders from Ephesus in Acts 20, famous story. And then from Miletus, he goes to Jerusalem. Now, oftentimes people don't talk about this movement here with the poor collection. It's not mentioned hardly at all. It's a little bit difficult. I think that's why. But that's roughly what happened. Now, one last point, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the Corinthians, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. When did he instruct the Galatian churches? Well, that was on the, at the beginning of the third journey, which we read about here in Acts 18, verse 23. And after spending some time there, that would be in Antioch, I believe, he set out traveling through one place after another in the Galatian territory and Phrygia. Galatia is in the center of Asia Minor. Phrygia is just a little bit to the west of Galatia. And then we go a little bit further west. We end up with the coastal provinces there. Asia, they're called Asia. The whole thing, place is called Asia and also the provinces on the coast. But well, he was in the Galatia and Phrygia in the, in the interior. Doesn't say too much about it, what he did there, but it says he strengthened all the disciples. And he tells the Corinthians, I also instructed them on how to give money. He's going to instruct the Corinthians in just a minute. 1 Corinthians 16:2 On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save, in keeping with how he prospers, so that no collections will be need will need to be made when I come. No collections, a church service with no collections. When you got a traveling speaker coming in, no collections. Paul did not like collecting money when he was at a church. He just didn't do it. He never did it. And he right here says, I don't want to do it now, even though the collection's not for me, it's for somebody else. I don't want to wait till the last minute and start hustling up money. Get prepared. Now if you spread out the collection week after week after week, what well, that makes it easier. Because then you can just take a little bit of your income and put it in a pot. And of course the saving is not done in a church pot. They didn't I don't think they had collective treasuries back then in the little house churches. But it's probably what they were doing is saving at their own homes, their private homes, not the not the home that the church was meeting in, but in their private homes, and they were putting aside a little bit every day, which is good financial sense. It's just much easier to do that when you save a little bit at a time. Have the money in advance. No collections. Now, it's interesting that Paul must have had some kind of a figure in mind because, you know, you, if you save money week by week, what's keep you from making another collection they add even more to it? Sounds to me like he had a general idea how much they needed to give to the Jerusalem church in conjunction with all the other provinces that he collected money from. Notice that it's proportional giving. The Cor- Corinthian believers are to save in keeping with how they prosper, which means rich people are going to save more than poor people, and nobody's going to look down on anybody or be jealous of anybody. The rich are not going to be looked down on the poor for giving less, and the poor are not going to be feel bad because they gave less than the rich. It's proportional to what you make. Notice there's no mention of tithe because tithing is not a New Testament law. There's no mention of tithing in the whole church. Lots of mention of finances, but never of tithing. Gee, I wonder why that is. It's because tithing was done away with. That's a Mosaic, Old Covenant deal. The rule in the New Testament is cheerful giving. And so these people were to give as the Lord led. And that can be difficult because you always say, well, I need more money, and I need to give money, and oh, how much do I give? It's much easier to make a law. 10%. And like all laws, 10% of what? 10% of the gross, 10% of the net, and on and on and on you go best thing to do is to ask the Lord how much to give and give it cheerfully, excitedly. Notice that this was on the first day of the week that they were to collect, set something aside. Why, why the first day of the week? Because that was the new day for worship. That was the Lord's day. That was Sunday, not Saturday. That was the common New Testament pattern. Why people speculate as to why the church met on Sunday? Well, Jesus was, retro, was resurrected on Sunday. That's the main speculation. and Fawcett, and Brown has another speculation. They state that many Jewish feasts started on Sunday. For example, the feast of the first fruits, that was after Passover. It, the first fruits was symbolic of Jesus' resurrection. He was the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And then Pentecost, that's the symbolic of the Christian's resurrection because first fruits are at Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is the harvest festival when the whole harvest comes in in late spring, or early summer. It's also called the feast of weeks, and so that's symbolic of the Christian's resurrection. That started on Sunday too. And then you got the Feast of Tabernacles, which is symbolic of the final gathering gathering in of the elect, the harvest, the final harvest. That was in September, or that was, I should say, the fall. That festival also started on Sunday. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Resurrection was on Sunday, and three of the, the three main Jewish feasts started on Sunday. But I will point out to you, nowhere in the New Testament scripture is there a command to worship on Sunday. It was just a pattern. It was just a custom And if you are like me and like to do things the way the New Testament church did it to try to conform your church to the pattern, well, then meet on Sunday, especially since it's convenient now. And remember in the first 300 years of the Roman Empire, of the history of the Christian church, the early church had to work on Sunday. There were no blue laws until Constantine established blue laws. I think it was 314 A.D., somewhere around there, first part of the fourth century. Well, at any rate, first day of the week, that's Sunday. Here's the other two scriptures that talk about the first day of the week. Acts 27, on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. We assembled in order to have the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. That was at Troas, where Paul stayed up all night on on his way through, and Eutychus fell out the window because of the smoky atmosphere in the room. Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. John the Apostle was talking about his vision he had on the Lord's Day on Sunday. I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. I think I might have mentioned this already. I'll mention it again. First day of the week says nothing about a Christian Sabbath that is made up by Reformed theologians. There's no such thing as a Christian Sabbath, in my humble opinion. There is the Old Testament Sabbath, which was on a Saturday. New Testament Sabbath, no such thing. They worked on Sunday. The early church did. And if you want to say that was a Christian Sabbath, besides, most Presbyterian Reformed preachers I know, the hardest day of the week, they work is Old Sunday. And in fact, most Presbyterian churches don't even keep the Sabbath, the, the so-called Christian Sabbath. If they do believe in it, they, they can make a very weak case for it because there's no scripture backing it up, and then they can't practice it either. It's one of my pet peeves. What I call mythical, mythical theology, People, theology that's repeated by tradition over the centuries, over the years. People just believe it because somebody told them that it was true, and they don't bother to go check it out, and pretty soon you, you've got tradition that can't be gainsaid despite the fact it's not in the Bible. We go to verse 3, 1 Corinthians 16. When I arrive, in other words, when I arrive in Corinth, he's planning to go to Corinth, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. Now, what letters is he talking about? Here's some options. He could be talking about, I'm going to, when I get to Corinth, I'm going to send out these messengers with the poor offering, and I'm going to send letters of recommendation. I'm going to say the Corinthian church has said that Brothers Sam, Dick, and Tom, Dick, and Harry are good brothers. They're honest. They haven't stolen anything of this money, and they're delivering this money to you in Jerusalem. That would be letters by Paul. But then somebody, I think Adam Clark, pointed out, well, if Paul was going to be with them, there's no need for a letter to commend the, the, the messengers of carrying the money. There was no need to do that because Paul could do it orally, be with them themselves. Well, I think Paul was probably meant to go with that offering, but in the next verse he says, if it is suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. If it is suitable, it sounds like he might have been thinking he might not be going. He might be going separately, so that could be the letters he's talking. He might be sending letters instead of himself personally, or it could be the letters or letters that the Corinthians have written to Paul Paul would write the letters to to whom it may concern, if you will, and then, or, or the next option is that the Corinthians wrote letters to Paul and says, Paul, we are now commending these emissaries carrying this money. They're good people. At any rate, notice how Paul is very careful for accountability's sake. There's a lot of money. We're not going to have any skullduggery. I heard some stories of corruption in China, which, of course, China's got the most fantastic church in the world, you know, but still, golly, that was some guy was caught with some Christian minister was caught with a trunk full of American dollars in cash in the back of his back of his car. That, that story kind of shook me up a little bit. I remember when I, we carried money over there, we would put the money out on a bed. The Chinese people on one side, the Americans on the other side, and they're counting that money. I said, "Here's how much money we're giving you," so everybody could see it. Not gonna be any skulldugger. Paul's very careful, you know. Hey, it's money. People will do a lot of bad things for money. There was a time in China where there was this underground church worker risking her life. She had gotten Watchman Nee's teachings in a summary and was teaching people all over China. And she was helping an orphanage, living in an orphanage with people for little babies that had cleft palates and were disabled. And was it was an orphanage, orphanage for disabled kids that people were throwing in the trash cans. You talk about an exemplary worker. And I gave her some money. And I get a call. I'm back in America, and I get a call from a guy that that started the orphanage, Christian guy, and he says, you have been robbed. I think I got that money back. I think he got it. Well, he did. He got it back. Well, actually, I didn't get the money back. The money ended up going to who I had given it to. I, the, this sister had collected the money to give to some poor sisters in another province in China, and she just took the money and bought a house with it, put a down payment on a house. So I'm telling you, money corrupts. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money will corrupt. I don't care who you are. And Paul was very careful. He's first of all he's sending seven brothers, as we'll see in a minute, and and he's getting recommendations for those brothers. So there's not any question that there's been some defalcation or embezzlement going on somewhere. No. Now when Paul says when I arrive, it sounds like he was planning to arrive pretty quickly, which he was actually. He ended up changing his plans and. The scholars speculate it's because he didn't want to have another painful confrontation with him. He'd already had one in a painful, a so-called painful visit, which is not mentioned, which is not described particularly, but it's speculated that this happened after he wrote 1 Corinthians, after he wrote the letter we're in, and so he changed his plans and didn't show up as fast as he had originally intended to do. Now notice that he mentions that the couriers from Corinth, are going to be recommended by whom? By him or by the Corinthians? By the Corinthians. I will send with letters those you recommend. Paul did not force himself on that screwed up church. He didn't say, I'm the apostle here. You people have been screwing up. I'm going to choose a Corinthian to deliver the money. And I've been collecting most of the money. No. He said, you, Corinthians, pick somebody. And notice he says this gracious gift. He tells the Corinthians that it was a gracious gift that you are giving. This is just human nature. Paul is thankful to the Corinthians for their gifts. When people give money to you, folks, you need to thank them for it. I'm gonna give you two stories. There's one. There's one uh, missionary guy and his family doing a great work, and I've given them money periodically. I never get a thank you note. I have never even gotten an email, and I'm thinking, you know, I know the guy because I met him, you know, and I know what he's doing is a good job. But if I hadn't have met him and I didn't get an email saying thank you. Or something, I wouldn't give him any more money. End of story. I'll give you another story. There's a friend of mine raising money for an old established evangelical organization and they had a donor list and donors had been given money and they hadn't bothered to thank them. And so, they, my friend and the other guy he was working with in this organization, they decided to just send emails to the donors and say, thank you for your past gifts. 45000 extra dollars came in in about a month. Thank you people for the gifts that they give to the Lord, to your ministry, to your poor relief, to whatever it is you're collecting that they're giving money for. You need to thank them. Paul did it. We go to verse 4. Paul says, if it is suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. They mean the couriers, the Corinthian couriers can travel on the way to Jerusalem. Now, why might Paul might why might it be that Paul would like to travel with the messengers? Well, it's important missionary business. Paul needs to be there on important missionary business. It was a lot of money. Paul may have wanted to keep a very close eye on it. Even with those seven brothers looking after it, it's just even better when you are looking after it. He could explain very easily when the, about the gift when it arrives. Of course, Paul is the eminent Jewish Christian gone to the Gentiles. He's the bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles. He could explain that the Gentiles are giving money to the Jews, and that would be very helpful. And also, if Paul is going to go with the messengers, this would be a subtle spur to the Corinthians to give more because they know that the apostle is there, the apostle that started their church. This is John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown's idea. And it would be a good thing for Paul to go with the messengers to Jerusalem because an apostle in person is more credible even than letters. When he gets to Jerusalem, he says, Guys, this is the people who've given you the money. They don't want anything. They just want to help you out. First Corinthians sixteen five. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. Paul is assuring the Corinthians here that he will indeed come to Corinth, despite the fact that there were some in Corinth who were denying that Paul would come. We read in First Corinthians four eighteen. Now some are inflated with pride, as though I were not coming to you. Remember, Paul slowed down on his plans to come to Corinth, probably after that pain, first painful visit, because he didn't want to have any more hassle with him until he was assured that they had gotten their act together. So he said, I'm going to come to you. Now, originally he had planned to go straight over, but now he's going to go through Macedonia, up to Troas and through Macedonia, instead of going straight. And that's what slowed him down. That's why he didn't show up. Paul had originally planned to go to Corinth first and then to Macedonia, but now he's going to Macedonia first and then to Corinth, as the NLV Study Bible and John Gill point out. We know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15-16. through 16. Paul says this, I planned with this confidence to come to you first so you could have a double benefit and to go on to Macedonia with your help. Then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. That was his plan. Corinth first, Macedonia second, back to Corinth, and then over to Jerusalem. But he had to change his plan. And so he was accused when he changed his plan to his opponents in Corinth said, see there, your founding apostle doesn't care about you. He's gone somewhere else. Well, actually, this is speculation. The real reason Paul didn't go straight on to Corinth but went through Macedonia instead was to give the Corinthians time to straighten up the messes that were in their church. He actually says in Second Corinthians, he wrote that for probably from Philippi. Somewhere in Macedonia he wrote Second Corinthians after he was assured by Titus that everything was okay in Corinth. And and he mentions this delay. He says in Second Corinthians one twenty three, I call on God as a witness, on my life, that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I was giving you time to straighten it up. I was otherwise, I was going to have to come down there, and have a come to Jesus meeting. Second Corinthians two one, Paul says this. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. He'd already been there once. Probably right after he wrote First Corinthians, or right before he wrote First Corinthians. Excuse me, I think. But he wasn't going to do that again. So that was why he didn't go straight over to Corinth, went to Macedonia first. Now he says he's passing through Macedonia on the way to Corinth, but he's going to say later on, I'm going to do more than pass through Corinth. I'll pass through Macedonia, but I'm going to stay in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 6 says this, And perhaps I will remain with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go sending you on the way that means helping you on a, helping you travel sending you on your way as the niv studied bible speculation could mean getting supp- i want you corinthians to get supplies for me equipment for me i want you to pray for me i want you to send me on my way with good will but money probably not because paul indicated earlier in the letter he did not want to be a financial burden to the corinthians first corinthians 9 11 through 12 If we have sown spiritual things for you, Paul says, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? However, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. We endure everything. In other words, we endure poverty. So that we won't hinder the gospel of Christ by asking for money and having everybody question our motives. So he did make use of the right to be collected. So he probably didn't take money as he uh, when here when he asked the Corinthians to send him on his way. Wherever he goes, his plans were not formalized yet. He attentively decided to go to Judea from Corinth, but plans were not yet finalized, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. We know in 2 Corinthians 1.16, Paul says this, to go on and, and to go on to Macedonia with your help, then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. Those were his original plans. We read in Acts 19.21, during the third journey, Paul says this, When these events were over, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, I must see Rome as well. Paul is at Ephesus here in Acts 19. Resolved in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit told him to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then to Jerusalem. So he went to Macedonia and Achaia instead of to Corinth first, as we've been pointing out. Notice how the details of 1 Corinthians and Acts job perfectly. We go to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 7 through 8. I don't want to see you now just in passing, as he's passing through Macedonia, but I don't want to see you just in passing, Corinthians, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Well, we know from Acts 20, he stayed three months in Corinth. In Acts 20, verse three, so Paul's hope that he that he had when he wrote First Corinthians 6, for Paul's hope that he had when he wrote First Corinthians 16 was actually fulfilled, as we know in Luke's account in Acts 20, three months in Corinth. Now, those three months were happy months because they got the church problem straightened out. Now. He says, "I will stay in Ephesus. This is how we know he wrote the letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, is early late spring, early summer, and I had a question that I asked myself because in acts twenty verse sixteen we read at the end of the third journey, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia because he was heard to be in Jerusalem if possible for the day of Pentecost and I thought to myself, now wait a minute if." Paul is, wants to stay in Ephesus till Pentecost when he's writing 1 Corinthians, and then when he's sailing to Pentecost, he wants to be in Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. That doesn't leave him any time. Well, the answer to that is he will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost of the year that he's writing the letter, then he's going to go through Macedonia, then he's going to go down and stay in Corinth for three months, and all that took about a year, a, a part of a year. And then as he's in Corinth getting ready to sail back or then, or then walk back on, on the way, to Jerusalem, he wanted to get back by, by the get back by the next Pentecost. So that explains that. So there's approximately a year from the time he wrote the letter and the and the year that he intended to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Why did he want to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost? Well, because there's going to be a lot of people there. He's got to deliver the money anyway, and if he's going to be there delivering the money, there's going to be a ton of pilgrims in Jerusalem and a lot of preaching opportunities, evangelistic opportunities with all those crowds in Jerusalem. Paul says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. Notice that Paul was not a hyper-faith, name it, name it and claim it, grab it and grab it, mark it and possess it, scream it and redeem it. Faith message person, he says, I hope to spend some time with you. He didn't know. He says, if the Lord allows, he'll the God to, to make his plans for him. We go now to 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me, yet many oppose me. Now remember, Paul is writing for Ephesus. The wide door, of course, is all the opportunities to witness at Ephesus because Ephesus was a very populous and important Roman city, city in the Roman Empire. It's still there, by the way, the, the remains of it. It's a great place to go see if you want to see what it was like to live back then in ancient times. And the Ephesians, of course, were very interested in hearing the gospel. Paul had a well, how long was it? I forgot how long it was. He was in the the lecture hall of tyrannus that he'd rented out and people were coming to listen to him preach the gospel constantly. He just said constant ministry. Wide door for effective ministry. And whenever there's a wide door there's a bunch of opposition from the world, the flesh and the devil. And in particular Paul's time in Ephesus the opposition he had was that big riot, remember that occurred because a person named Demetrius a silversmith made silver shrines of Artemis. People quit buying the silver shrines because they were believing in Jesus and not in idols anymore. And they got all upset and got a bunch of people in the in the Ephesian amphitheater and started ranting and raving and screaming and hollering about Paul. Paul didn't go in there because they would have torn him to death. He was, he was restrained from going in there and so forth. You know the story. That's in Acts chapter 19. So yeah, Paul, he fought with wild beasts, he says in another passage at Ephesus. But he had a wide door for effective ministry too. So the, the two usually go together. 1 Corinthians 16.10 If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear from you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Now, Paul had sent Timothy and Erastus out to to Macedonia, probably to Philippi. He had not sent Timothy straight to Corinth. You notice he says if Timothy comes, which means that Timothy might have on his own motion gone down to Corinth or Paul actually might have sent Timothy somewhere else besides Philippi and then Timothy might have come down or Paul may have sent... Timothy straight to Corinth. We don't know. He says if Timothy comes. But if he does come, see that he has nothing to fear. Why might Timothy have something to fear? Because Timothy is closely allied with Paul, and the Corinthians are pretty mad at Paul. They are listening to people, false apostles, criticize Paul. He's he's short and bald, and his speech is unimpressive, and all that kind of stuff. And the church is all screwed up, and they might have come after Timothy. And Paul, Paul's trying to back Timothy up. He says, look here. He's doing the Lord's work just as I am. And notice the Lord's work is not always pleasant. The Lord's work in Corinth was not pleasant for Paul. This was probably a very unpleasant time for him. So Paul stands up to Timothy. How do we know Paul sent Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia? Well, we read Acts 19.22. So after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he stayed himself in Asia for a while. Erastus, by the way, was was... A Corinthian, he was the, his name has been found on a block of pavement down there. it has got the name of some Greek official, officer of public works or something, I forgot. And people speculate this is the same Erastus going back over there to Macedonia with the idea that he's probably going to go back home to Corinth, maybe. Timothy seems to have a problem being timid, and Paul's trying to say, you know, I don't want him to fear anything from you guys. Paul might have been a little bit concerned about Timothy's timidity. He says when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We know that Timothy mainly worked around Ephesus, and apparently he was a shy kind of a shy guy. 1 Timothy one seven, For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. He's writing this to Timothy, saying, Don't be afraid, be strong. We all have our weaknesses, folks. We all do. We go to verse 11, 1 Corinthians 16. Therefore, no one should look down on him. Therefore, why for? Because he's doing the work of the Lord just as I am, Paul said in the previous verse. Therefore, no one should look down on him because of his youth and so forth. Send him on his way in peace. Again, when you say send somebody on, that means provisions, snacks, carry-on meals, equipment, supplies, that kind of thing. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. Those brothers are unnamed. Maybe brothers who were traveling with Timothy. Maybe some brothers coming from Corinth. In fact, one commentator, in fact, Adam Clark says this certainly, and Gill mentions this, that it could be referring to brothers already in Ephesus. For I am expecting him to come, to come to me here in Ephesus so that we can all be together with the brothers. I don't know the English here, at least. Sounds like he's talking about brothers coming from Corinth. It doesn't matter. Nobody knows who those brothers are. But Paul is protecting him. He wants Timothy to come in peace. No arguments, no strife from you, Corinthians. You people have caused a lot of trouble. Don't you start picking on my apostles. Therefore, no one should look down on him. Doesn't that remind us of what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12? Let no one despise your youth. That's probably one reason they could be looking down on poor old Timothy. Ladies and gentlemen... We are now finished with the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 16. We will continue with Paul's travel plans and some other miscellaneous details at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, starting with verse 12. We'll do that in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.